Today, I am pleased to welcome Cal DeSange to the Coastal Front Studio. Cal is CEO of Kids Play Foundation, an active member of the Vancouver Police Department, and most importantly, a proud father. With over 20 years of law enforcement experience, Cal first served 15 years as a patrol officer before becoming detective. Mr. DeSange worked in one of the most challenging and violent environments in North America in what is known as the Vancouver Downtown East Side, where he was one of 15 officers as part of the beat enforcement team. Cal's service as law enforcement has led him to focus on providing youth with constructive outlets through sports. In 2015, Cal founded Kids Play Foundation. Under his leadership, Kids Play has had over 500 volunteers and over 70,000 youth participants take part in their programs since its inception. Today we're going to be discussing the Downtown East Side, the School Liaison Program, gangs, organized crime, and a variety of other topics, and tying this all back into Kids Play Foundation. Cal, thanks for being on Coastal Front today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, great. Well, for the listeners and viewers to understand a little bit more about yourself before we dive into these topics, maybe just uh, open up a little bit more about uh, Cal DeSage. Who are you and, and, and uh, what's, <laughs> what makes you such a neat guy? Well, well neat is such a subjective term. <laughs> <laughs> but um, essentially, when I was finishing university, uh, I was always fascinated by the adversarial nature of the criminal justice system. And law enforcement was just one of the many sides of the coins of what I was interested in. And my pursuit initially was going to law school. And so I was in the process of prepping for my LSAT and getting ready for that. And I was just uh, coming into my fourth year at university and then an opportunity presented itself. The opportunity was the RCMP Summer Student Constable Program. So essentially what it did, it, it was a two month crash course where they take their selected candidates. It was quite a lengthy uh, application process. They take their selected candidates, which were essentially university students, and they wanted to give exposure to these students about what policing is all about. It was part of their uh, recruitment uh, selection process. And so I thought, you know what, this would be a fascinating uh, insight into what the policing world is all, uh, all about. Because had I even gone to law school, I was more interested in the prosecutorial side of things as part of Crown. And so this opportunity presented, I'm like, okay, I applied, I made it. And it was a crash course where over the course of two months, they basically gave you a whole bunch of legal training. It was uh, metaphorically the equivalent of drinking water through a fire hose. And so uh, you'd learn all that. And then on top of that, they teach you basic combat skills. I already had a background in kickboxing. So I was very adept at the martial arts side of things, but uh, tactical uh, skills uh, on the street, handcuffing, uh, how to deal with situations that you might come across, they put you through some scenarios, and they're like, pat on the back, here's a uniform, here's some handcuffs, a flashlight, away you go. So they put you on the street with a senior officer who was considered a field trainer officer, and I spent uh, two months on the road in Surrey, and this was back in 97. Okay. And so I patrolled different parts of Surrey, so that included Guilford, um, South Surrey, Newton, it's just some of the areas. And it was an absolutely uh, invaluable and insightful experience, so much so that essentially that was the catalyst uh, that precipitated my trajectory and determined that someday, you know what, this is what I want to do. It was, wow. uh, as cheesy as it sounds, I mean, it was virtually a call of duty really? where I just realized, okay, this, this is it. Yeah. Like this is this is what I need to be doing, and, and so how old have you been at the time? Probably, I think I was uh, twenty at the time. Okay, and yeah. so um, as soon as I finished my last year of university, I applied to okay. VPD and uh, got in, and uh, never looked back. But wow. I'm telling you, man, it was um, it was <laughs> it was baptism by fire, really? where yeah. it was sink or swim, and uh, I came from a very insulated background which was primarily sports and academics yeah. uh, raised in a very positive constructive environment yeah. uh, where parents were always strongly promoting and encouraging uh, being engaged with the community because I grew up in a very traditional Sikh family yeah. so uh, one of the uh, primary tenets and fundamental principles of Sikhism is seva and seva literally translated means to serve, to un serve. unconditional service right and so uh, for me I, I grew up with that mentality and so policing in its essence 
is a form of service. Yeah. And so uh, it was just a natural gravitation for me to, okay. to head in that direction. But it has been quite the ride. And so you joined the Vancouver Police Department and you basically, like you said, you've never looked back. Um, you served 15 years in patrol and then have moved into a detective role. For us um, outsiders that don't maybe understand the policing world, what is the big difference between being a patrol officer versus a detec detective? Uh, you know what, at the end of the day, not much, except it becomes a specialty. Because I always tell even all the, uh, the new officers that are coming on to the job, is learn the fundamentals first, learn the mechanics of the job. And by mechanics, what, I'm, what I mean is that it's when you do patrol, that is the bread and butter of policing. So you're learning tactical skills, uh, you're learning um, how to interact with the general public, you're learning fundamental investigative skills, uh, you're learning operational skills. There are so many skills that you acquire in patrol. Uh, so a typical day in the downtown east side when I was acting sergeant is, uh, especially on a Friday, Saturday, at some, time, some points in time I'd be running multiple calls multiple major calls where you had a man with a gun where you had a stabbing all of this in progress at the same time simultaneously and so you have to be adept and capable of dealing that dealing with something like that and that only comes with experience and knowledge and that experience and knowledge only comes with time mm -hmm. and so you need to invest at that fundamental level uh, in policing and it's from there that you acquire these fundamental skills that you can subsequently transition into other aspects of the job, such as becoming a detective. So all the detective investigative skills that I learned was in patrol, and it's just amplified right. when you go into an investigative okay, division. Okay, that makes sense. Well, I'm really excited to, to explore uh, with some, a veteran in the VPD some of these various topics we're going to discuss with you because you obviously have such a wealth of experience and, and street knowledge. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to start with the, um, the Vancouver Police Liaison Program. Um, so this was a, a, a big piece of uh, Ken, our now mayor, Ken Sim, and the ABC party. It was one of their uh, things that they said, they're, they're going to bring this back. Uh, they're going to bring back the Vancouver uh, Police Liaison Program that was removed under the former uh, administration under Kennedy Stewart. So for those listeners who aren't familiar with it, can you first explain in sort of layman's terms, what is the Vancouver Police Liaison Program? And do you believe in it? Do you like it? Do you support it? Do you think it's good for our community? Do you think it's for good for our youth and our schools? So specifically, uh, you're referring to the School Liaison Officer Program, which is the SLO program. Okay. And the SLO That's what it's called? School Liaison Program? School Liaison Officer Program. Officer Program. Okay. Uh, the SLO program. Okay. And so the SLO program, absolutely, I firmly believe in it. Okay. Uh, because, I mean, obviously later on in this dialogue and conversation, we're going to get into one of the main reasons why I started Kids Play. But you have to keep in mind is that with kids that were coming into the downtown east side and i'll just use this as context kids that were coming into downtown east side they never had positive interaction with police right they grew up in very toxic uh, dysfunctional environments for the most part where it was always negative interaction with law enforcement officers and so they always had these uh, stereotypes uh, that they would possess and uh, it was very difficult to shake that off and, and tell them explain to them we're actually the good guys. Uh, we're here to provide you the resources and the support that you need to become successful in life. But unfortunately, if they were committing crimes, we were arresting them, pushing through the criminal justice system. They'd be thrown into the youth detention center and spewed back onto the streets to re-engage in a perpetual cycle of violence. And we'd be at it again, arresting them again. So of course, there was gonna yeah. be that negative interaction. Mm -hmm. But why let it get to that point in the first place? And so with a program like the school liaison officer, you have actual officers that are specifically designated to select schools to operate within that school. That is their purview, that, that's their job mandate, and that is their focus. And so they're essentially working in those respective schools, A, establishing rapport with these kids, getting to know them, because I can tell you the best way to prevent a kid from getting into a lifestyle is not to be reactive about it and deal with the situation after it's been done. Yeah, it's sure. to be proactive about it, build that rapport. So should that child be heading down that slippery slope or that path that you're able to prevent them from going down that path in the first place? That comes through relationship building. And then secondly, more importantly, is that should a situation happen in school, the officer is familiar with all the characters in the school. He's familiar with the dynamics. 
he's familiar with that subculture, that context, and they're able to deal with it in an adequate way and identify the culprits relatively quickly and perhaps even diffuse it in a situation that doesn't require the criminal justice system to get involved. Right. So there's intervention that can be done at uh, multiple levels. And so in that respect, an SL program is absolutely invaluable. And the majority of the kids were in support of it because they, a lot of them that might have been heading down the wrong path were able to establish a rapport and a positive relationship mm. with that officer, which inspired them to stay on the right path. Right. And you, gotta, you can't put uh, a monetary value on that. No. It is unbelievable if you can have that level of substantive impact on a child's life. Now, to be a devil's advocate, I'm not, and I, I, I myself personally support it as well, so I'm not speaking as this, this question isn't as though I don't agree with it, but just to, if I was to put myself in the shoes of, say, Kennedy Stewart or one of these city councillors who were, or the, or the uh, actually it was the Vancouver School Board trustees who removed that program uh, in the last administration, um, they would take the position, well, you know, there's a, because of there's this negative um, sort of... Uh, uh, connotation between a lot of youth and police removing them from that environment is because the, the the police had some kind of uh, you know created uh, trauma for these these young kids at, at these high schools I'm a big believer in data um, you know being a, a financial person I just believe follow the numbers and um, we did see a window where the SLO was removed uh, here in Vancouver did we see any shift in what was going on with, um, uh, let's say, uh, gangs successfully recruiting kids during that short window in which, uh, or was there any data that we can speak about that says, yeah, you know what, that there's, there's a positive correlation between having office liaison officers in the schools and this uh, negative effect that goes down because they're there? Well, unfortunately, I don't have any hard metrics in front of me, but I can tell you for uh, a high level of certainty that there would be a statistical correlation uh, between uh, removing the police uh, SLO officers from this program. Like, it doesn't take an academic leap to realize that when these officers have had such a substantive impact on these kids over a long period of time, and all of a sudden you take them out of that environment, uh, what essentially is going to be left at the end of the day, it's, um, it becomes relatively obvious. Yeah. And so, uh, sure, it's going to leave a void, a gap, a vacuum, which is going to essentially uh, facilitate uh, that negative element seeping in. And mm -hmm. so in that respect, I think it was absolutely imperative that we kept the officers there. And if we were to break down the metrics and take a look at the numbers, I'm sure that there would be hard empirical data, which would show that, yeah, I don't think that was such a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Are there SLO programs in other major municipalities? Like, for example, you mentioned you did a lot of work early on in Surrey. It's the fastest growing municipality. It's going to be bigger than Vancouver by population in the next couple of few years. Yep. Do they have these types of programs in other municipalities? Uh, unfortunately, they don't. Oh, they don't. Uh, and the Surrey RCMP has very limited resources. Got a lot of friends and family that are with the Surrey RCMP, and they're doing an absolutely fantastic job with the resources that they do have. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're providing great level of service, but in the same vein, there's limited number of resources. And so uh, with VPD, I think we're fortunate enough that we do have the number of officers that we can um, uh, disseminate and uh, reallocate resources into these schools as the SLO program. Yeah, okay. Um, sticking to the theme of sort of municipal decision-making, uh, again, under Kennedy Stewart and the former administration, they, they basically, in a, in a sense, defunded the police, uh, the Vancouver Police Department, by not uh, granting the police department its uh, sort of increase in the allocation of the budget in, I think it was like 2020 or 2021. They had to go to the provincial government uh, and, and sort of uh, took it to court, I guess, so to speak, and, and they won, and, and they managed to get that $5 million back. And now Ken Sim and the ABC party have come in, and they've actually, they're doing, going beyond that. I think they're actually infusing another $5 million. Of course, one of the, uh, one of the campaign promises of Mayor Sim was to, uh, in his first 100 days, was to hire 100 uh, public health nurses, as well as 100 new uh, uh, police officers. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at after the, the, the George Floyd inf, inf, uh, incident, um, there was a big push uh, around North America for this sort of defund the police. Um, what is your feeling at this time around that movement? And I, mean, I kind of assume that you're not in favor of defunding the police since you are been involved in law enforcement since the, you know you were in university. Um, well, do you have a take on this? Do you want to maybe some, make some comments? Well, I'll be honest with you. I mean, it was tremendously heartbreaking when we go from uh, public heroes that are out there doing good work to being demonized 
mm-hmm. in the general public perception. And so sometimes it comes down to optics and perception where uh, granted there might have been a handful of officers specifically involved in that George Floyd case. If you were to talk to any other officers that might have viewed that video or taken a look at the tactical uh, strategies that were deployed during that particular situation, the majority of officers would express concern, say, you know what, that's not how we're trained, and perhaps that's not how it should have been done. I'm not going to be an armchair quarterback and make comments right. uh, sitting from here, but in the same vein, you've got to keep in mind that the majority of police officers are individuals that are remarkably responsible and accountable to the general public, and we would rather diffuse a situation verbally than having to deal with a situation physically. But when the physical element requires for it, we are put in a very tight spot. If a general member of the public was to put themselves in our spot when we have split seconds to make a decision in a very violent confrontation, you got to keep in mind we've received specific training where we have to make these decisions in a manner that is accountable to the general public, follows the Police Act, which is, the, which is essentially the legislation which dictates and governs us. And we have to think about all these things before we take that step. Yeah. In the same vein, uh, simultaneously putting our lives at risk, which is part of the job and completely understandable, and that's what we signed up for. But you have to keep in mind, like these are multiple variables in the same equation, which we are thinking in nanoseconds before we make that sure. decision. And so in that respect, it's just for the general public to come along. I won't say the general public, but large contingencies of the public to come along and these segments to say, you know what, that's it. Remove the funding and yeah. we need less police on the streets. If you take a look at any of the major cities in the U.S., as an example, whether that's Boston, Chicago, uh, Baltimore, uh, you're essentially going to see that where you're going to see that there was a massive spike, New York included, where when they started defunding the police and removing officers from particular beats and precincts, that crime went up. Yeah. Uh, quite yeah, as astronomically. I, th- I, you know, I think the voters uh, made, made the decision here with this latest municipal election by punting out Kennedy Stewart and uh, the majority of the previous city council um, and, and they were the ones that decided, no, we, we want to support a city council and mayor who are going to support the police department. So I, I have a lot of friends who work in, in the patrol units of, of VPD. Most of them are visible minorities. And they, they tell me that the Vancouver Police Department is like probably the most inclusive, respected, um, um, supportive uh, law enforcement agency you could probably find in North America. So. Um, so I, I mean, it's nice to hear this side of the message because I think that to try and like categorize the VPD um, in the same category as some of these you know militarized law enforcement units in the states is just not fair. What isn't? Uh, you got to keep in mind, and I'm not going to paintbrush uh, any of the departments in the U.S. this way, but at the same time, you have some of the smaller departments in the U.S. where they might have had, um, hired candidates that would not be considered suitable by certain thresholds. Right. Right. And um, so in that respect, you're going to have individuals that might not have the same level of training, might not have the same depth and scope of knowledge or expertise to deal with particular situations. And so in that respect, it doesn't matter where you go in the world. Policing is policing. And what when you boil it down essentially to its fundamental atoms, Policing is dealing with people mm-hmm. and having that capacity to interact with people on a daily basis in a very responsible, mature way is extremely important. Mm-hmm. I agree, 100%. Um, Cal, you mentioned earlier about, as a police officer, how frustrating it can be uh, to try and do your job and then see the system fail um, at the um, at the the at the at the court level, right? And and as an example. Um, Canada's premier sent a letter to uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau um, just on Friday uh, stating that basically this, this catch and release bail program for re- uh, talking about the repeat offenders. Um, what is your take on the catch and release bail system um, that, that these premiers were writing about? <laughs> I'll go back to the day when I was arresting individuals, everyone was going to jail. because i mean at the end of the day is just uh the preservation of the public peace and safety was uh first and paramount uh to me uh but over time we began to realize that i mean there's certain rules regulations in place where uh, you know what we need to be following it to a t 
And in that respect, what I'm essentially insinuating is that the Bill Reform Act was there for a reason. The Bill Reform Act essentially stipulates once you've identified them and there's no longer uh, any um, threat to the public and uh, with respect to there is no fear that there might be a repetition of that fence, then technically by law that person should be released. And mind you, when we'd be arresting them, they'd be released on UTAs anyways, on an undertaking. And so, so what's a UTA? An undertaking. An undertaking okay. essentially where they are released on conditions. Here are your conditions. Make sure you abide by these. Here's the court date. Away you go. And so they're sent on their way. I see. And in that respect, I mean, so we would immediately take that threat off the street because I was working the downtown east side. The majority of the individuals we were dealing with were remarkably violent. And so granted, we were going to arrest under those circumstances. And so we'd send them to jail. But uh, subsequently, shortly thereafter, that they'd be released on these UTAs and put back on the streets and we'd be seeing the same guy later in the afternoon or the next day. And so, but in accordance with the law, that's what the Bill Reform Act essentially stipulated. So we had to make sure that we were operating within those parameters of the law. But with the catch and release program, you have to understand like the criminal justice system, uh, there's rules, laws and regulations in place for a reason. And whether we agree with it or not, when I first got on the job, uh, my recruiting officer asked me, they said, you do understand that you might become remarkably frustrated with the criminal justice system at one point in time. How do you feel about it then? And I essentially explained to them that, and I feel the same way today, is that I'm going to do what's best within my capacity to do the best job possible. Right. But I will always remember that I need to operate within those parameters and boundaries, and they're there for a reason. Yeah. So just that simple. That's got to be tough, though. Of course. Yeah. It's a, uh, in many cases, it can be a bitter pill to swallow because we've seen violent individuals come back on into the street again and re-engage uh, in these types of violent offenses, putting somebody else's safety at risk. Sure, of course. Yeah. I mean, Premier uh, Eby has been talking about this recently. That there, I don't remember the stats, but it was something like they, they did, there's, the VPD came out with something saying that there was, a, um, I don't know, 40, 40 individuals uh, within Vancouver, the downtown east side, that accounted for like 6,000 uh, or, uh, you know, offenses or, or arrests last year alone. Like there's, it seems to be this very small pool of very repeat offenders who just, and I follow Howard Chow on Twitter and he's often pointing this out. He's like, we, you know, we just arrested somebody yesterday who's had a uh, hundred convictions in this person's life. Yeah. The, the recidivism rate with respect to some of these perpetrators is, uh, is stupefying mm -hmm. where these, it's a rotating door. And they're constantly in and out. And I understand exactly what you just said right now because I would be running into those individuals. Right. When I was in the downtown east side, what is the downtown east side? It's a six block radius of some of the most uh, the violent crimes that you'll see in all of North America, considered one of the most dangerous areas. And it was primarily on account of these types of individuals that made it so dangerous because you've literally had these handful of people, a uh, handful of perpetrators that'd be constantly engaging in crime. Mm -hmm. um, Cal, let's expand a little bit more for our listeners and viewers on the downtown east side. I have a couple of graphs here from the city of Vancouver, um, and this is where they do their, their annual homeless count. Now, I guess because of COVID, they didn't do it the last couple of years, but the latest data was from 2020. And as you can see here, it says um, in 2020, there was an estimated uh, almost 2,100 uh, people that were identified as being homeless. This is as of March 4th, 2020. About a quarter of them were identified as being unsheltered and three-quartered as being sheltered. Now, what's also interesting is this, this map, and as we can see, it's called the unsheltered individuals by homeless count areas. So they basically broke it down into four areas. So the first one is uh, what I'll just note as West Side Vancouver. So probably from Granville Street West. Only 9% of the homeless population is in that area. The next highest was going to be the downtown core, but not part of the downtown east side, uh, 19%. Then the second, the third category was what's considered east side Vancouver, which is uh, 20%. But amazingly, the downtown east side of this nearly 2,100 people accounted for over 50% of the homeless population. So. Um, that's the stats. Those are the, the fancy looking data and the nice looking graphs uh, or map, but that's not the street level view. So for someone who hasn't been down to the downtown east side, I mentioned to you the other day, I drove through there just a couple when we well, after we spoke, I decided to drive through there and I couldn't believe how miserable it looked. 
And I, I feel so sad for these people, you know, like these people are living in, in, in just complete misery in a, such a wealthy country. Maybe describe for the listeners and viewers who are not familiar with the downtown east side. They haven't been drive, they haven't driven down through or walked through there in years. Yeah, the, what is it like today, Cal? Uh, it's in a state of decay. Uh, you have dilapidated buildings, broken down area. It's. I remember when I was going through university, <clears throat> I had um, professors that were talking about a thesis, a thesis called the broken windows thesis. Broken windows thesis was a thesis that was. Um, ratified by a criminologist in the US, which spoke about how there is a statistical, statistical correlation between broken windows in a neighborhood and the level of crime, because it shows that the neighborhood is in a state of dilapidation and decay. And it stands true, no matter where you go in the world, is that when you take a look at these small little red flags, such as these broken windows, it gives credence in water and weight uh, to a theory like the broken windows thesis. And that's essentially what you're looking at the downtown east side. It's a broken system down there where uh, I would see these decaying, dilapidated buildings. And you got to keep in mind, there are so many different factors that come into play, which essentially generates the perfect storm where you've created this environment and atmosphere that self-perpetuates itself. I have been saying for the longest time, even when I was down there, that it made no sense to me whatsoever that all the SROs, which are the single room occupancy buildings, are congregated and congested in one tight area. Why why aren't these spread out? They should be. However, you have various neighborhoods throughout the city of Vancouver, which are saying, not in my backyard, I'm sorry, right? Right? We're not going to want it here. And so uh, I'm not going to get into that. But at the same time, it's just it made more sense to me because when you throw everything into one place like that, you're essentially uh, generating um, that type of atmosphere, those type of conditions. And uh, it allows it to flourish and thrive, which uh, once it reaches a certain tipping point of momentum, it's very difficult to uh, change that inertia. Is this the worst you've seen, the downtown ASAP, or has, it been, has there been periods of before that's worse than this? It's the worst I've seen. Worst you've seen? 100%. There, <laughs> there is no doubt about that in my mind. Never in my time that I was down there did I see this. Like I would be walking the beat alone multiple times, not to suggest that I would change my tactics now by any means. I'm still the same guy. Yeah. I still have the same experience, and I'd, be, I'd have no issues going back into patrol as a beat patrol officer in the downtown east side. Uh, as a matter of fact, every now and again, when I am passing through that area and I have a file that requires me to go talk to one of the agencies down there and so on and so forth, there's still people down there that recognize me really, because <laughs> I was there long yeah. enough. And, uh, but there was that also that respect there. Yeah. And so I think there was a lot of respect for the old veteran cops that were down there as beat patrol officers because we were fair. Yeah. Uh, we did things in such a way that we knew that uh, we explained that there was a line in the sand that you don't cross. But absolutely, uh, things have... Uh, gone down, they, things have digressed, mm-hmm. to put it mildly. I always like to talk about solutions uh, when we talk about problems, because I think that's the way in which we advance as a, as a community and a society. So for your take, um, and I'm not going to try and make it, make it political here, but just w- what's your take on, wh- where's the, where are some places that are some easy wins that we can have uh, uh, to, to make the downtown east side better than what it is today? The general public needs to understand that the, I won't say the the greater majority of the individuals that are down there, but a strong percentage of the individuals that are down there are suffering from mental health issues. Right. So you have these individuals that are suffering from mental health issues, and what are they doing? They're self-prescribing themselves drugs to sustain their drug addiction habits. Then you have the drug economy. Right. So you have the open-air drug market, the illicit drug economy, combined with individuals who are suffering from mental health habits. You have the predatory drug dealers, individuals from different gangs that are operating down there. You have Red Alert, you have UN, you have the Red Scorpions, you have the Brothers Keepers, all these different gangs that are operating down there, vying for territory. So there's a, a lot of violence that's going on between them for greater territorial control of the area down there. So you have extortions, you have kidnappings, you have shootings, you have stabbings, all this happening there in that small area. Mm-hmm. It was mind blowing. And so it's almost like some out of a Batman movie. Like, I, it's like, 
not a word of a lie. I'm telling yeah. you the truth. I would describe it as Gotham City all the time. Yeah. And all the supervillains just conquered. Right. Yeah. And that's just not as, as, as glorious and, and, and entertaining. It's like real and it's miserable. Very real. Very miserable. And yeah. As a matter of fact, Stanley Price and Shane Knox uh, were two very high profile gang members that were operating down there uh, who we were able to pull out that are now part of the Kids Play family. And so they're speakers for our uh, drug and gang team. Wow. But they speak to this all the time of things that they would see on their side uh, of perspective. Yeah. Because as law enforcement officers, we can say this was bad. Yeah. They'd be telling us all the actual stories too. Wow. Of the stuff that was uh, going on down there where you had uh, people that were kidnapped and tortured for days in, in their uh, SRO suites for drug debts that they were owing, heads being shaved. There was so much going on down there. And so I don't think the general public was really aware uh, the the state of degradation hmm. uh, and just- um, But it's uh, continuing now. To continue to what extent, I really don't know, yeah. but it's become more overt and obvious and transparent that there is a significant problem here, which is a manifestation of some of the deeper systemic issues which are down there. Yeah. On January 31st, so really just a few days from now, BC will be dec decriminalizing uh, personal possession of small amounts of uh, illegal or illicit drugs. This includes uh, heroin, fentanyl, crack, meth, and MDMA. And as I understand, um, it's uh, as long as you have two and a half gram, was that the number? <clears throat> as long as you have two and a half grams or less, and as Kieran had pointed out to me before we sat down, he said, you know, the difference of having two and a half grams of, let's say, cocaine versus fentanyl versus uh, meth, it's, a, it's quite a, like fentanyl, two and a half grams of fentanyl is a lot of fentanyl. That's a lot of fentanyl. Yeah. What are your views on this decriminalization? Well, I mean, not to, it's a very precarious position to put myself in because yeah. as a community advocate and as somebody that runs kids play versus my role as a police officer. And from a law enforcement perspective, and these are the laws that we are binded by. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly there was wiser minds that prevail and uh, this type of legislation was ratified, keeping in mind that it was perceived as being one of the solutions to deal with um, relieving some of the pressures that are in the criminal justice system right now for minor possession. And in the same vein, uh, when small possessions are criminalized, you have more and more individuals that would be using them in secret, which was essentially uh, perpetuating the overdose crisis that's happening in British Columbia right now, but not only here, but all across Canada. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, if their primary objective and purpose was to prevent these overdose rates from further inflating and trying to find some kind of resolution uh, for this issue, then in, from that perspective alone, it makes complete sense mm -hmm. where something like this was required as some type of intermediary position, um, intermediary resolution to deal with the issue at this moment in time, whether it turns out to be a, a Band-Aid solution or whether it, whether it turns out to be something more significant later on down the road, hard empirical evidence will need to provide evidence well, of that. Yeah, will tell us. Um, again, going back to s these friends of mine who work at the VPD, they've told me that basically nobody's been arresting, uh, you know, say, say users or addicts with uh, possession for decades. Um, that it's, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like virtue signaling that these politicians are putting this in place because it's not like people are being criminalized, unlike the early days that you described where you would go and bust a bunch of users. Um, is that true that a lot of people who are, are addicts and are just using are really, they're not really being arrested today for small holding, having small amounts of, of drugs in the first place? Well, I mean, it's it was discretionary where officers would come across individuals that might have been in, um, possession of small amounts and might have exercised discretion at that moment in time. That all depended on the officer. But the law dictated that, I mean, if somebody was found in possession and we were in a position to arrest and has satisfied the essential elements of the offense uh, based on the CDSA and the Criminal Code of Canada, then we should be arresting. But you got to keep in mind, it's just uh, with laws being ratified like this, sure, it might be a signal of the times of what's happening right, right now, and maybe it might be an overt attempt uh, by governments to ensure that uh, we can do something to suppress the overdose issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, my take on it, Cal, is um, you, you're just, this is one more way of tying the police uh, hands behind their back, because it, like, if, if you, you I'm, I'm assuming if you're a beat cop in the downtown east side, you probably know 
who the users are and you probably know who the drug pushers are. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely, yes. Okay, so like if you can't now arrest a drug pusher because they're sitting with, they're, sta they're standing there with 2.4 ounces of fentanyl, um, I mean, to me, it just like, at least at least that was an option before, but now that option is not is not going to be there after January 1st, is it 31st. Is that, it, is that a fair statement? But in the same vein, the fact that we do know who the pushers are, there's numerous other um, strategies from an investigative point of view which we can utilize uh, to put together that investigation to pursue charges against that individual. They were always our main focus, these predatory drug dealers, right. uh, which were preying on the vulnerable segment of society, those that are suffering from drug addiction. Because you've got to keep in mind, like a lot of times, uh, the currency of payment for these uh, low-level users to peddle the drugs for these drug dealers was the drugs. So they'd be paid in drugs. Where Oh, really? <laughs> absolutely. Oh, interesting. Where they would make the deals throughout the day, pay the, off the drug dealer, and then they'd be given X amount of drugs as a form of currency and payment wow. for their services that they, that they offered that day. Wow, it's like a Ponzi scheme, almost like a pyramid. A hundred percent. And wow. so we would see this quite often wasn't the case necessarily for all of them, but quite often we would see that. So in that respect, our focus and objective was always to take these predatory drug dealers out because what is it at the end of the day? It's organized crime. Yeah. When organized crime embeds itself so deeply into the downtown east side that it continues to perpetuate that open air drug market, then that's a significant issue. And the only way we're going to deal with this issue is arresting them or at least going after their bosses or their pyramid uh, and their hierarchy versus taking off, uh, taking on the small users that are at the street level. If we continue focusing our efforts and resources on the small users at that level, it's essentially the virtual equivalent of shoveling water. We're not right. getting anywhere. Right, yeah. Um, Cal, this is a really good segue into talking about organized crime and gangs because I, I really want to make sure we had to spend some time talking about this because this is going to help us lead into why you started up Kids Play. But I, I know this has been a big part of your um, of your work that you've done uh, as a as a law enforcement officer. Um, one of the things that we talked about was. You know, you've got this vision of like wh where gangs come from, and you think about places like Compton, or you think about the projects in New York, and these these youth that are are born and raised in a world of misery. You know, they're broken families. They don't have any money. Nobody has a job. They're around addicts all the time. Like, there's really no for a lot of these people, there's no path for them other than you know going. And then they go, they get attracted by these gangs, and they and it might not even be for all the really fancy stuff, but just a way of like surviving in. The, you know, the streets of Compton, as, and as a, as a guy, white white guy in a suit would say, I don't, I don't know, I mean, I've never been down there, but that's my vision, right? Absolutely. What you see on the TV and whatnot. But then you look here in Vancouver, and you see these gangs, and it seems like a lot of the people who are part of these gangs, I mean, I can't think of anywhere in Vancouver, maybe other than the downtown east side, where there's people like living in extreme poverty and in projects, like we don't have projects like they have in New York City, right? Like in Queens and Brooklyn. So can you maybe highlight for me like why but we, yet we have this huge gang problem here in vancouver and every now and then once every couple of years it really erupts and you see shootings all over the place and uh you know unfortunately sometimes there's bystanders that get uh, affected by this and sometimes killed um so can maybe like highlight why we're seeing this and give it get paint a picture of what the gang environment looks like in metro vancouver and how it's different than say other places like in LA. Yeah, what you describe right now would make complete sense if we were to say, from an academic point of view, that granted that those that come from extreme uh, backgrounds of poverty, naturally there's gonna be a few outlets that are gonna be made available to them which are relatively lucrative and give them an opportunity uh, to find that financial capital base. That i.e. being that if you have kids that are coming from the Bronx in New York or you have them coming from the barrios of L.A. Uh, or the projects in Compton, naturally these kids are going to gravitate towards the drug trade or the gang trade because that is going to be the most lucrative for them and allows them a form of escape from their poverty. Yes. They come from remarkably lower, uh, remarkable impoverishment and lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Yeah. That is the furthest thing 
from what we're seeing here. It is completely astounding and mind-blowing because no form of academia would ever be able to theorize that this sort of thing would be possible where you have kids that are living in the west end of Vancouver that come from multi-million dollar homes that have been afforded every luxury west and side of privilege Vancouver. their entire lives would resort to that lifestyle. But you have to keep in mind it makes complete sense to me because I have seen it all. And when you rip away the layers and you take a look at essentially what we're looking at, what you're seeing is kids that grew up with instantaneous gratification and a sense of self-entitlement where everything they did want, they were given. And as a matter of fact, one of the gangsters said, the reason why I became who I did is because I was given everything I wanted in life. And so I never understood the value of hard work or money. You have a gangster really? that says that. And so if you take a look at the Kang brothers, I'm specifically referring to them, where they did operate on the west, uh, not operate, but they were born and raised on the west side of Vancouver, where around the UBC side, where their dad was a, a land developer. Uh, he had done tremendously well for himself. And these guys lived in a multi-million dollar house on that side, given every luxury. Was their dad involved in organized crime? Absolutely not, no. They were afforded every single opportunity in life. And uh, he was a le- their dad father was a legit hardworking person that was law-abiding. And, but these kids were given everything they wanted. So they were going to high school with Beamers and Audis and Range Rovers, and they never had to afford anything in the, or work for it uh, to purchase anything in their life. So in that respect, that's what they grew up with. There's actually a book out by an economist called The Tipping Point, and in it refers to the next generation as the Big Mac Coca-Cola generation. And essentially what he was trying to say is that if you think about it, where with a drive through at McDonald's, so when you're hungry, you order your Big Mac and your Coca-Cola, and within minutes, you have your food, and, and the hunger's gone. And so essentially, you take that on a broader economic level where you have these kids that are growing up with instantaneous gratification, they become entitled, right. where when they have received everything that they ever wanted. A friend of mine who's a manager of a luxury uh, auto lot where uh, he said to me, he goes, Cal, when I was growing up, uh, I might be uh, the manager of this lot now where I'm selling these luxury brands, but when I was growing up, uh, my parents didn't give me anything. Where they said, you want it, you go earn it, as it should be. So he goes, I worked my butt off, and finally I was able to put together enough money that I purchased my first car, which was an 86 Honda Civic. He goes, it was rusted. He goes, there was multiple issues in the car. Upholstery was ripped up. He goes, but I was proud of it because I earned it. And I busted my ass for it. And he goes, uh, I repaired it, renovated it, reupholstered it. He said, uh, I made it look brand new. He goes, but I would cruise down the road and I'd be so proud. <laughs> and he goes, I kept that for years and that's what got me through university. And point being is that you have somebody like that that understands the value of hard work, sacrifice, commitment, and dedication, and did all the right things and earned it. And today, he has achieved a remarkable success in his personal life. And But when you have kids that grew up in that kind of lifestyle where they were given everything as kids and they grew up with that sense of self-entitlement and don't understand the value of money, then they, a couple of things happens. What normally ends up happening is at some point in time, the parents are saying, hey, we've reached our financial peak. We've given everything that we could to you. And if you want to earn this luxurious lifestyle, which you've continued to live, you're going to have to do it on your own. So these kids are essentially turning to the easiest way to make money, which is the most lucrative and literally money overnight. It's the drug trade. Hmm. And along with it, you get this romanticized, glorified, scarface version of the gangster life where these guys are going out and using intimidation and tactics, uh, force and violence to get their way. And the, they're somehow under this delusion that the respect that we receive for being these high-end gangsters and thugs is legitimate respect, and it's not. And so, unfortunately, they become entrapped in this lifestyle, and the deeper they go into that rabbit hole, the more difficult it is for them to get out. Right. And when they're in deep enough and they realize, all right, you know what, I, I don't see the end of the tunnel anymore. Like, 
this is it, where there was a lot of gangsters that later on throughout their gang career uh, down the road basically said, you know, I want out. I want out, but I know I'll never get out because this is it. I've made my bed and I got to sleep. And why in can't now. they get out? Is it because of the money or is it because like they, they, there's people who have got holding something over them now and uh, or they're just, they know the, the, the system is designed to not let them go? I don't understand that. That's essentially what it is. Like you have somebody like Stan and Shane who are part of the, the Kids Play Drug and Gang program. Uh, I'll share this with you because they have openly remarked about this as well during some of their presentations. But even they were fearful, fearful of their safety when they got out of that lifestyle because of retaliation mm. uh, from those that they were in the gangs with. Uh, one of the gangs in particular, uh, their code was that the only way you're leaving this gang is in a coffin. Wow. And so having said that, now all of a sudden you step away. But the more important thing is when you step away for the right reasons, you have somebody like Stan and Shane that it wasn't just a matter of them just stepping away to create a better life for themselves, but they also wanted to be uh, assets to the community where they went out into the public and shared their trials and tribulations and personal struggles so that no other child would follow that trajectory and path and end up falling into that trap. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, it takes a remarkable amount of courage and bravery uh, for them to do what they did. And I am so proud of them. Well, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it would be. And it's probably hard to even imagine, hard to imagine the life that they were in when they were there and how to get out of that. So this sort of conventional or uh, this uh, stereotypical vision we have of what draws in people, what kind of people get drawn into gangs is not really rough, reflective of what we've actually seen here in the Metro Vancouver area, um, just to help maybe even parents. Like, I, I mean, I'm, I live on West Side Vancouver, three young kids, uh, you know, pray to God they never get involved in anything like this. But what are some of the signs that, uh, like, can you, can you kind of almost identify, like, kids who are going to be victim, like, prone to being drawn into a gang? Like, is there certain telltale signs, like maybe parents aren't, mom and dad aren't really around, or, uh, you know, is there a certain characteristics that you know tend to draw in certain types of kids yeah if these kids are carrying around multiple cell phones and carrying around big wads of cash cash that you haven't given to them right. or they've drawn from any account that would have that kind of cash you should be asking some big questions yeah but i'll tell you like i mean but it seems to me like if you're a parent and you don't see like shouldn't like maybe the biggest problem here is parenting is maybe that's the problem is not parents not like like these Kang brothers, I don't know who they are. I've never really heard of them before. But I mean, maybe their dad wasn't, their mom wasn't, weren't involved enough in their lives to even know what was going on. They weren't. They weren't. And in many cases, it's a case of willful blindness. It's the right. ostrich with the head in the sand approach. The parents want to just ignore it. You know what? It's, yeah, we don't want to know anything about this, right? It's just as long as you're not creating any trouble for us, you go do what you got to do. And there's massive disconnect. Uh, we've mm -hmm. noticed uh, where a lot of these kids do end up going into that lifestyle. But mind you, that also segues into um, a story in particular, which I yeah. share all the time when I do present. A good friend of mine who recently passed away, Manny Amar, was a documentary filmmaker. And he ended up shooting the first documentary on South Asian gangsters. And this was quite a while ago. And one of the scenes in that documentary was him visiting a very high profile South Asian gang member that was at GF Strong at VGH. And for those that don't know, GF Strong is where you uh, go through recovery for very serious injuries. Mm -hmm. And so the gangster, uh, I'll go by the surname of Butar, was, uh, had been shot in the back and had uh, become a quadriplegic, lost use of his limbs, and he was lying in bed, but he could still talk. And uh, so Manny asked him, he said, at which point in time in your life did you know that you would become a gangster? Was there a turning point that you took this road? Was yeah. there a fork in the road? Yeah. And he goes, yes, there was. And he tells the following story. He said, I came from a very dysfunctional family. My dad was a drunk. He would constantly beat up us and my mom. There was a lot of domestic abuse at home. And he goes, I was only 12 years old at the time. And he said, I always prayed. I was a good kid. I always prayed that my dad would stop drinking and that there would be peace in the house. Like we would just be like any other regular family. And he said one day there was a coloring competition at his school, an art competition. And he thought to himself, you know what? I'm going to work hard. 
I'm going to win that coloring competition and I'm going to bring home the first place prize. I'm going to show it to my dad in his innocent mind. He like, he's, he's playing the scene out. He said, I'm going to bring home that first place prize. I'm going to show it to my dad and my dad's going to be so happy. Give me a pat on the back. And he's going to say, you know what? I'm so happy. You can ask me anything that you want. He goes at that moment in time, I'm going to ask him to stop drinking. How innocent was that? Mm -hmm. Right? Like in his mind, He's actually he's 12 years old. He's 12 years yeah. old that this is how he played out the scene that he believed that if I truly win this, that it will change my circumstances, that my dad will really stop drinking and we'll be a Disney happily ever after family. So he did work hard. And as a matter of fact, he did win. So he won the competition. He brought, came running home with his art piece and his first place prize. His dad was once again lying drunk on the couch. And he comes home and he shakes his dad. He goes, dad, 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 look, you know what? Here's my art piece. It's hard not to get emotional when I think about the story because no child deserves this. He woke up his dad. He goes, look, 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 I won first place prize. His dad gets up, tears the art piece into multiple pieces and throws it in the kid's face and says, no son of mine will be an artist. He goes, that is when I knew who I was going to become. And you think about it, how many other families this scene plays out? And then we wonder, where did this kid go wrong and right. why did they end up on this path? So, I mean, you got extremes on the spectrum, like the Kang brothers that came from all the wealth and privilege and luxury in life, where you have kids like this that grew up in dysfunctional family households where the parent might've been uh, an alcoholic mm -hmm. uh, or there might've been some other dysfunction in the family where the kid ends up following that path. This is why with kids play and my personal belief system is that early childhood development is so critical and important is that we can catch them at that age. Mm -hmm. We really can. And anytime we have a large scale drug and gang presentation or conference, it's not just the kids we're bringing out it's the parents, right? Because unless you change that environment at home, nothing is going to change. Yeah. Well said, Cal and great story. Let's talk about kids play. Sure. All right. To kind of move a, a positive spin on this. Um, you started Kids Play back in 2015. As I said in my intro, you've had over 70,000 youths participate. Maybe st start by uh, having the listeners and viewers understand what is Kids Play? Sure, absolutely. So when I first arrived in the downtown east side, uh, as an officer, I think my perspective was very myopic. It's very one dimensional. Uh, it was a conventional way of thinking. And I would look at a lot of these drug addicts as, and I'll say it, like I looked at them as junkies. It's just like, if they want to quit, they can't. Like it, it was a very limited way of thinking, very sure. short-sighted. Yeah. And I, like, mind you, I came from a very insulated background, tremendously naive, where I'd never really been exposed to any of this. And it's not until you begin to understand their circumstances that you begin to humanize them. And you begin to understand that, you know what, more can be done to resolve this, especially when it comes to the kids. Once again, I would see a steady stream of young kids that were entering the open-air drug market. They would engage in crime. They got charged, pushed through the criminal justice system, thrown into the youth detention center, and spewed back onto the streets to re-engage in a perpetual cycle of violence, and we'd be at it again. And it goes back to the old anecdote, the, uh, the tadpole in the well, where um, I'll share this story, where there was a tadpole in a well living with his parents, and he says to his parents one day, I'm gonna go see the world. And the parents are like, yeah, that's a fantastic idea. You go do that. So what does the tadpole do? He swims once around the inside of the well and comes back to his parents because I saw the world and it was absolutely amazing. They said, well, we did the same thing when we were, we were your age. Point being is that had they all stepped out of the well, they would have realized how big the real world is. Right. And same thing with these kids that were coming into the downtown east side, that is their well. That's all they've ever known. Right. In many cases, multi-generational where it's, uh, it's one uh, generation of uh, experiencing dysfunction, poverty, and toxicity to the next, and always negative interaction with police. And so these kids that were coming into the downtown east side, once again, uh, after we'd be operating and pushing them through. I'd be coming to my locker at the end of shift, taking off my uniform, and something just wouldn't sit right. I, like, I just think to myself, there is so much more that we could be doing because personally, my personal belief system is that uh, we were part of the problem definitely not part of the solution. How could this be the solution if all, all, it is, all it is is law enforcement? Right. And we're pushing these kids through the system. 
Mm-hmm. I go, well, what purpose is that serving? Because yeah. we'd be arresting them the next day for the same crimes over yeah, and over again. it's not solving the problem. Right, alluding back to what you were saying earlier about the recidivism rates, that it's a small pool of individuals that are constantly re-engaging in the same crimes over and over again. Well, where did these individuals come from? Most likely the kids that were growing up into that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And so in that respect, I just thought there's so much more we can be doing. So I had enough. And uh, I was actually driving by a park in East Vancouver one day and I got an idea, a soccer tournament for inner city kids. You know what, if you think about it, building positive rapport and providing constructive outlets, hopefully we can steer these kids away from a life of drugs, gangs and crime. So uh, it took me a couple of months uh, to organize the tournament and I secured about 500 bucks in funding from the department. It was a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trust yeah. me. I, str- I stretched every dollar, I made it work. But food, equipment, medals, trophies, certificates, all the fun stuff, cool. right? And so uh, on the day of the tournament, myself and a couple of other officers on our day off, we put on gloves, we cleaned up the field of needles, garbage and other debris, set up the tables with medals and trophies and laid out the equipment. And then we waited, and soon a convoy of kids could be seen making their way to the park with raised eyebrows and hardened attitudes. And one of the kids yells out, yo, where's the donuts? I hate to tell him, but we don't don't do donuts anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm more of a bagel kind of guy. But the neat thing was, over the course of the day, these hardened attitudes, they melted away. And these kids became kids. These same kids that would have been raising their middle fingers and hurling swear words while riding by on their bikes were now giving us hugs and high fives, right? So we continued running those soccer tournaments and they became the successful formula for building kids play. And so uh, that was with the Police Athletic League back in the day. And I just thought, you know what, there's, we need to transplant this program into the broader community so that every child can benefit from this. And so that essentially became the catalyst to create kids play. Uh, back in 2015, a nonprofit where kids from any background, anywhere, regardless of caste, creed, ethnicity, religion, race, uh, or socioeconomic background, was given an equal opportunity to engage in positive constructive outlets. But I wanted to predicate it on two main principles. Number one, absolutely free of cost. Up till this date, not one single penny has been charged to any family or kid because I don't want it to be financially restrictive to any parent that deprives a child of an opportunity. Yeah. And so when it's free, there's no excuse. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> right? yeah. And secondly, we're completely volunteer-based. Uh, granted, we have a small staff uh, which runs our daily logistics and operations uh, locally, um, domestically in Canada, across Canada, nationally, I should say, and internationally. So uh, we've spread out now to Colombia, India, and Uganda. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> International operation. That's really, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's neat. Yeah. And, and so, so give me a sense. I mean, I'm a financial guy. What's your annual operating budget? How you've got, uh, you said how many, volu- uh, how many is paid staff? Uh, we have five paid staff. Five paid staff. And yes, you were absolutely right. It's actually 600 volunteers and we're hitting a hundred thousand kids now. Wow. Yeah. And so, uh, but we had the chapters that we run across uh, Canada is Vancouver Calgary and Toronto and each has its own different operating budgets Oh, I see. uh, because Toronto is relatively new so they're still growing Calgary is almost on the same scale as us now and they have done tremendously well as a matter of fact that's being run by Sergeant Bhavan Daliwal who is a sergeant with the Calgary Police Service down there and he just uh, received multiple awards recently one of them being the 20 top Calgarians and one of them being the uh, the Queen's uh, Platinum Jubilee Award and so uh, he's our leader there. He runs that chapter. Uh, he's done tremendously well. He's already got six of uh, six of the volunteers into police services in that area. Uh, I think one in Regina, the rest in Calgary, uh, one in Saskatoon. And uh, but with locally, we have over twenty-five volunteers that have become law enforcement officers in really? Vancouver. Twenty-five. Wow. Sheriff's Correction Police. And, uh, it is incredible. And what uh, are the but, top three sports that are uh, that kids play? Kind of helps helps uh, kids get into. What's the most? The, the soccer number one. Or? Soccer's number one, yeah. without doubt. Especially now with this team that we've got. Right? Well, neat like, story behind that. Yeah. So uh, I was selected uh, because we promote soccer so heavily. Yeah. Because uh, we also work with the Vancouver Whitecaps. Yeah. And our BC Place flagship our flagship event is the BC Place Stadium Super Soccer Tournament which okay. we run every single year for uh, kids that come from the inner city school catchment area. Yeah. But a neat story behind that is because we're running these kind of programs in the community, the Whitecaps decided to nominate me as community superstar with the uh, MLS community superstar program. So what that program was is that one candidate 
uh, would be selected by each MLS Major League Soccer team yeah. across North America, and those candidates would then be flown out to where that championship game was being held. So in my particular case, it was Orlando, Florida. Okay. So I got a chance. To, uh, Karen was with me, who's yeah. my president, who's here today. Uh, we all went down together to Orlando, Florida wow. to witness this game, which was a super cool experience. But uh, yeah. It's, and what year was this? Oh, my God. This was almost three years ago, three, okay. four years so ago. Pre-COVID, you Pre-COVID. were able to... Yeah. have some drinks and not have to wear masks and everything. what amazing experience that would have been it was wild yeah. it was absolutely wild and uh well even wilder is the fact that i just got back from the world cup in guitar and uh, that's a whole different story yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah that mls experience was very cool but point being what was even cooler is that there was so many other organizations where these candidates had been selected that were with us who were running similar programs in their respective cities like soccer became this universal language that they were able to use to connect with their local community. One in particular stood out for me because one of us was going to get chosen uh, to win $10,000 for our charity, 10,000 US. And the running was primarily between me and this other individual. And the other individual was running a soccer program for inner city kids in South Central LA for Hispanic kids. Families that had uh, come over from Mexico that were still uh, transitioning to that life, that were not financially well off, that, that was extreme poverty. And this guy would take out his time and run these soccer programs for these kids to keep them off the streets, away from the, the bloods and the crips and the gangs. Yeah. And personally, my fingers were crossed and so were Karen's for him. For him, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we wanted him, to, and he did. Yeah. He won, and I was so happy his mom was with him. I gave her a big hug and him, and yeah. I'm like, you know what, I'm very happy for you guys. As a matter of fact, I think the money is you know, well spent over there. Yeah. And we would rather have it going over there. Yeah, well, neat story. Well, on the topic of money, so if, uh, if our audience who are listening to you today, Cal, want to support Kids Play, you did mention it's a registered char- uh, charity. Yes, we are. So contributions mean it comes with a, a charitable um, uh, receipt. Receipt. Yeah. So um, t- talk a little bit about what's it's 2023. What have you guys got planned for this year? And uh, and you know how can people get involved? I'm assuming you also like you mentioned you've got over 600 volunteers, so people can not only donate their money but they can also donate their time. Yeah. You know what I always say that um, I understand that not everybody has the time, but everyone has something to give whether that's time, talent, or treasure, the smallest contribution can have a significant impact on a life in unimaginable ways. And so absolutely, we have a lot of sponsors who have also said, hey, it's not just money, I also wanna give my time. Like mm-hmm. I, wanna, I wanna be a mentor, and they are. Yeah. So I'll give you an idea of how we're set up. We have six streams. So we have the educational stream where we do uh, conferences, forums, presentations in high school. And so uh, we recently had a large-scale drug and gang forum uh, with over 400 people there, and that was in Surrey. Uh, and once again, these are all free. Uh, our keynote speakers are a drug and gang team that come out and talk about their personal experiences. Uh, and then the second stream is sports. So we work with the BC Lions, the Vancouver Whitecaps, Surrey Eagles, uh, Vancouver Giants, uh, to name some of the few where we run camps, clinics, or other events initiatives with them. And once again, these are all free of cost. Uh, and tournaments are fun. They're free, and these kids get a chance to play the sport and win lots of prize money and, and other stuff. Yeah. Uh, third is environment. I'm big on environment. We do tree planting with the kids. We've already planted close to 5,000 trees in various municipalities. And so a lot of the kids that haven't had experience with planting a tree, and they get a chance to do this with their parents. We tell the parents to come out as well yeah. and partake in that because we want this to be a family event. And when the parents get a chance to plant a tree with their kid, it means all the world to them because not only it becomes a great memory, but combined with the fact that they learn something about the environment, climate change, and all that as well. Uh, Number four, our mentorship program. We have specific select elementary schools that we go into on a weekly basis in Surrey, Abbotsford, and Langley, and we connect with the kids there. So uh, we run mentorship program there, uh, bring in keynote speakers, do different sporting activities with the kids, keep them engaged, build positive rapport. And once again, it's that proactive approach that we take to keeping kids on the right track. Uh, number five, our community patrol program, where we have uh, older kids that are uh, first or second year university when the locks alone kits walking the streets uh, in key areas within Surrey specifically at this moment, high visibility vests on, and their goal is not only to distribute information pamphlets to the general public, also build a relationship with the local vendors, merchants, businesses, to keep your eyes open for issues that might be going on, such as graffiti. We do street cleanup, 
Uh, we adopt streets uh, as part of that program. We do graffiti cleanup. And uh, we also help out in any way within that community that we can. And uh, a neat program that we started, a new stream, is our counseling program. We have six certified counselors that provide free counseling to families in need. Wow. So we've identified a lot of families that are coming through our program that need counseling services. And these, uh, that program has just blown up where the needs sure. were so dire, so deep, and so great yeah. that these families are now uh, finally getting the help they need. A part of that program that they've also started running is what's called art therapy. Art therapy is a weekly run program our counselors run where kids get a chance to come in uh, and engage in positive constructive outlets uh, to channel their, ex uh, their channel their feelings and express them in a positive constructive way. That program went from 15 kids to over 50 within the span of a couple of months. And the only reason, uh, there's a lineup of about 100 kids waiting, but we can't accommodate them because we don't have the space. Right? <laughs> so literally, like we are, we are so limited with what we can do is uh, there's so many families that are waiting because part of our sports program is summer camps and spring camps that we run. Our summer camps, we have over 300 kids just in the Surrey camp alone and another two to 300 in the Abbotsford camp. We run two simultaneous summer camps. These are free camps which run for about three to four weeks and throughout the summer. We would love to grow all our programs yeah. and take them to a whole different level. I'm so happy for our international programs. Columbia, these kids came from, when we talk about extreme poverty, yeah, these, no, that's kids, talking, these kids yeah. came from barrios, right. extreme poverty, and they would have been on the streets, part of gangs, but uh, our senior coordinator there uh, runs a baseball team with these kids. And so we have them in a league now, and these kids are practicing seven days a week, playing this league, winning championships. So that's the Columbia program. In Punjab, you have kids that come from different castes, which are part of this uh, program. Several villages within that region that are now part of the Punjab sports program. These kids that had never participated in any organized sports before are now participating in track and field events and winning championships. And Uganda just started <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. So wow. I'm sure they'll do uh, some marvelous things over there as well. Yeah. Wow. What, what a great story, Cal. This is amazing. So if, if people would like to donate, they can simply go to, there's a website. I'm just going to just go kidsplay. Kidsplayfoundation.com. Dot com. Yeah. yeah and great. you know what? I have no issues giving my personal phone number as well. It's yeah. 604-619-1064. I'm sure it'll blow up, but uh, <laughs> I'll just hand the phone to Karen and she can deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, folks. Uh, if you're thinking about a, a good... A good um, a charity to support this year in 2023, Kids Play Foundation. Cal Desange, you're the uh, CEO and founder of the foundation. Uh, you're also an active uh, member with the Vancouver Police Department in a detective role. And, sir, thank you for all the years of service uh, that you've given. Um, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. The work you're doing in our community is amazing. We need more people like you. But we'll take you for sure. And I love the and I love the fact that you dress so sharp for Coastal oh, Front today. <laughs> well, I got to keep up square to you. and everything. <laughs> I knew so, there were some high standards yeah, here. Exactly. So, uh, you know what? I just wanted to keep up. Thank you, Cal Desange. Thanks very much for coming on the show. It was my absolute pleasure. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks.